Hey everybody, Liam here. This is the second episode in the Long Lost Oakland miniseries. Just a reminder, Long Lost Oakland is the name of the map I've been working on that features things that no longer exist. The idea is that all these things help explain the Oakland we're living in now, how we got here. Okay, now for the big news. If you want to get a copy of the Long Lost Oakland map, the Kickstarter campaign just launched. If you go to eastbayyesterday.com, you can check it out. The amazing T.L. Simons of Oakland-based front group design did an incredible job illustrating the entire map by hand. And there are a very limited number of maps that are signed by the artist, so don't sleep on those. Also, I've got a bunch of events coming up in the East Bay where I'll be talking about the map and why I hope it'll help make sense of this really disorienting boom that we're currently experiencing. Check out eastbayyesterday.com for links to all that stuff. Okay, on with the show. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. The most vivid memory that I have was going with my dad into the forge shop. And it was a large, cavernous, huge, fairly dark building. It, it was overwhelming for me. I was probably five or six or something like that. That's Ron Moore. The place he's describing was one of the biggest shipyards on the West Coast, Moore Dry Dock Company. His dad, Jim, was one of the owners. I must have probably clenched my poor dad's hand so tightly it must have hurt him because I was overwhelmed by the sounds of the huge blast ovens and the uh, forging. It was really otherworldly. The shipyard was in West Oakland, at the south end of Adeline, right on the estuary that connects to the bay. The scale of this operation was almost beyond words. In old pictures, you can see more than a dozen cranes and mazes of scaffolding and massive block-long buildings where they manufactured everything from hulls to engines. There's just acres and acres of metal everywhere. Pipes, tracks, steel plates. The ships they made were so huge that trucks lined up next to them look like little toys. It's been closed for decades, but Ron still remembers tagging along with his dad. The heat from the huge furnaces that they had there that were on the sides of the Ford shop, the tremendous hammers and presses was overwhelming to me. At its peak during World War II, more dry dock needed a lot of workers, like 35,000. Once word about these jobs got out, the shipyard became a magnet for folks from the South. Oakland had a pretty small African-American community before the war. The town's black population was about 3%. But this was the moment when everything changed. In 1940, 
Oakland's black population was around 8,500. Just 10 years later, it was almost 48,000. Looking at this World War II boom, and how people dealt with it, and what happened afterwards, it reveals so much about today's Oakland. Here's someone to help us make sense of it all. My name's Dorothy Lazard, and my job title is librarian for the Oakland History Room of the Oakland Public Library. Dorothy's family moved to Oakland in the late 1960s. The first place they settled down was Oak Center, which isn't too far from the old shipyard. But more dry dock had closed a few years before Dorothy's family got here. This was the era after the boom. Around this time, another West Oakland resident, Huey Newton, described his neighborhood as a crumbling ghost town. Huey Newton's dad had worked in the shipyards. That's why he moved their family out here from Louisiana in 1945. Like I said before, this was the moment when everything changed. I think it was an important cultural and economic and demographic period, the war, the World War II, because I think it really kind of set the blueprint of what the area was going to be moving into the rest of the 20th century. What she said about that era setting the blueprint is so on point, because blueprints are very intentional. You create a blueprint before you build something, say a ship so that it'll look and operate the way that you want it to. Cities are like that too. There's not a single blueprint, but there are very specific plans. And where certain people are allowed to live, and where the jobs are, and who gets the best resources, those kinds of decisions are never left to chance. Cities are designed by people in power to look and operate the way they envision the way they want. There's a really great book about this called The Second Gold Rush, Oakland and the East Bay in World War II. Here's the author, Marilyn Johnson. And uh, she's talking about stuff that happened a long time ago, but see if this sounds familiar. Everybody's always ready to, you know, embrace the boom times, but with the boom times come all kinds of implications for changes in the social fabric, some of which can be quite damaging. And you have to pay attention to that or you end up with a a very different kind of city that's going to be kind of haunted by those, those dislocations, right? Haunted by dislocations. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good description of Oakland these days. And that's why I wanted to look at this history now because maybe we don't have to make the same mistakes this time around. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned. Before we get into World War II, let's talk about how more dry dock ended up in the East Bay and how it grew into one of the biggest industrial operations on the West Coast. To do that, we've got to turn back the clock to a time before there were cranes lining the shores of Oakland. My great-grandfather came here, and my great-grandmother as well, in 1849. Again, that's Ron Moore, whose family owned the shipyard. 
He's talking about how his ancestors immigrated here from Scotland during the gold rush. At the time, California was growing as fast as they could build things, and people like Ron's great-grandfather Joseph had no trouble finding work. Joseph Moore had an engineering background, and he ended up managing some of the biggest metal manufacturers on the West Coast. You might not have heard of Vulcan or Risden Ironworks, but you're probably familiar with elevators. Yeah, Joseph Moore built the first elevator in California, in San Francisco's original Palace Hotel. Supposedly, he was the first person to ride in it, too. Oh, and you've probably heard about this place. They also did the structural steel for the ferry building. Joseph Moore's son, Robert, is the one who founded Moore Dry Dock. The company started in San Francisco, but moved to the East Bay in 1909. Even back then, San Francisco was getting pretty crowded. They needed a lot of space to build and repair giant boats, and they found the perfect place in Oakland. The Moore family had a house on Adeline, and they knew about an old shipyard just a few blocks away. The Boole shipyard had been there since the 1880s, and it was old school. Think more along the lines of Pirates of the Caribbean than Battleship. So Moore bought the operation and modernized it. Now would probably be a good time to explain what a dry dock is for those of you who aren't boat people. A sort of a U-shaped structure in most cases, and it allows a ship to actually be lifted out of the water so that it can be uh, repaired or cleaned or even um, remodified. More dry dock built everything from freighters to ferry boats. Then came World War I, and that's when business really blew up. They produced a bunch of these really crazy-looking vessels called Dazzle Ships. Imagine if Bjork painted a 400-foot-long boat, and that's what Dazzle Ships looked like. Wild, jagged patterns, bright, clashing colors. The idea was to mess with German submarines. The theory was that maybe the U-boat captain looking through a periscope would hopefully be confused if they were intent on firing a torpedo at the ship and hopefully misunderstand the direction the ship was going in. One of these Dazzle ships was called the SS Oakland, but a lot of the work at Moore during World War I involved repairing ships that had been attacked. In looking over the list of ships that were torpedoed or damaged or lost, it's really, really sad to me and humbling to think of how awful that must have been for those poor people. Whenever a new ship was launched from Moore Dry Dock, it was a huge deal. Looking at old photos, you see thousands of people celebrating, American flags waving everywhere. Some of these ships sailed for decades, but some only lasted a few months before ending up at the bottom of the ocean. After the war, the demand for ships dried up, but more stayed in business by producing structural steel. One of the pieces they made was the largest, heaviest girder ever produced on the West Coast at the time, and it's still holding up the balcony in the Paramount Theater on Broadway. 
There's a picture of Ron's dad and grandpa standing on the girder with about 50 other guys. They also made parts for the Bay Bridge and the bridges that connect Oakland with Alameda and even the cyclotron at UC Berkeley. The cyclotron is pretty complicated. It was a particle accelerator that paved the way for atomic bombs, nuclear energy, and even some forms of cancer treatment. But here's what I find so stunning about it. This shipyard in West Oakland went from making wooden boats that look like something out of Moby Dick to helping create some of the most advanced nuclear age technology in the world over the course of about two or three generations. But during this time of rapid technological advancement, social progress didn't exactly keep up. <clears throat> Silicon Valley, I hope you're listening. Okay, here's something everybody can relate to. Your first day at a new job, it's always pretty awkward, right? You don't really know what you're doing or where anything is. You're trying to figure out which of your coworkers are cool, how to avoid pissing off your boss, all that stuff. It's stressful. Now, imagine if your first day at work was right after moving to Oakland from some dirt road town in Texas, and you're surrounded by all kinds of equipment that could crush you or melt you or slice you in half. Oh, and a decent amount of your 35,000 other coworkers don't want you there just because of the color of your skin. One more thing, you're a woman and you've never worked alongside men before. And now you're surrounded by them. It must have been just staggering for somebody who is fresh off the farm, as they used to say, to adjust to that. Again, that's Dorothy Lazard of the Oakland Library's History Room. Even though that situation I just described sounds pretty rough, to put it mildly, most people who got jobs at Moore considered it a blessing. Not far in the past, these people can recall the Depression, where they're living from pillar to post, when they're starving and hitching uh, from place to place, partaking of soup lines because they had no money, picking up work where they could find it because there was no steady work for so many people. So in a way, that war industry, it was a salvation for a lot of people. During the Great Depression, Americans were literally starving, and black folks in the South had it just about worst of all. Jim Crow laws, the KKK, you get the picture. But then World War II starts. At the same time that lots of men who work in the shipyards are going off to war, the demand for new ships is skyrocketing. Places like Kaiser up in Richmond and Moore in Oakland needed lots of new workers, fast. And they sent recruiters around the country to lure them to the East Bay. Given the racial atmosphere at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of reason to say, oh, well, I won't go to California because it just seemed like a great opportunity, so why not go and start over again? Unfortunately, a lot of what African Americans were trying to leave behind followed them out to the West Coast. A lot of the kind of racist uh, mentality 
got transferred to California too because those people were were uh, recruited just like everybody else. The people who wanted to escape the repression and uh, the people who were repressing folks, uh, they were part of that recruitment pool as well. You know, they were trying to uh, improve their economic lots and escape sharecropping or uh, low-paying jobs. Now, before you California people get all smug, here's the thing. Racism in the shipyards wasn't just imported by white folks in the South. Back in the 40s, this woman named Catherine Archibald wrote a book about her time working at Moore Dry Dock, and what she observed was a sort of racial hierarchy. Here's Dorothy to explain. They separated out, which is something unfamiliar to us now. You know, like Portuguese were considered not white. Italians or something might not be considered not white. So Okies were like a separate, almost class of people. It was just really interesting that there was all this stratification. Okies was kind of a catch-all term for poor country white folks, not just migrants from Oklahoma. They were treated as inferior to other whites. Anyway, the way all this racial hierarchy played out was with who got the best jobs and who got the hardest, dirtiest, lowest paying jobs. In the shipyards, there was not a lot of cross-racial management, you know, like black people couldn't manage white people in some cases. You can't be the boss of this guy because, you know, he's higher rank than you by his race, not well, by thing his with women too. experience. Just, exactly. No man would want to take orders, orders from, from a woman. Yeah. Exactly. So it must have impacted the workplace. It had to have. Oh, you know, yeah. it's just like somebody may have been much more skilled, smarter, but they still um, could not advance as far as someone else, like a white person would. Right. Yeah. And they're getting paid less. You know? And they're getting paid less pretty routinely. Uh, And, of course, the women are probably getting paid less than the men. So here's the thing about all this racist and sexist job discrimination. You've got to put a lot of the blame on the unions. Here's Marilyn Johnson again, who wrote about this in the second gold rush. There definitely were some tensions and um, hopes that these new workers would be a temporary thing and that you could kind of protect your craft and, and protect your unions and um, try and make sure that they would be ousted at the end of the war when things went back to normal. Long story short, most labor leaders knew that opening up the Boilermakers Union and Teamsters and so on was a threat to the white men who were already in these unions. They were working class guys and they saw people of color and women as competition. And in a way, They were right. That's how capitalism works. More workers in the labor pool means lower wages. But that certainly doesn't excuse this behavior. Really, it's the same kind of mentality that President Trump played on to demonize immigrants. Either way, it was a bad strategy. This exclusionary mentality ended up hurting the unions in the long run. Oh, and I should add that there were some unions that were welcoming to new members including women and people of color, just not the biggest and most powerful unions.
This is what I think would be interesting if you could go back in time and experience a day or two of what the city felt like during the war, how many people there were. People were renting out rooms. People were renting out bathrooms. Sleep. People were sleeping in tubs just for a few hours because the, the shipyards never closed. There was never like a nine to five shift and then we're going to close and then we'll open up at eight tomorrow. It was 24 hours for years. The reason people were sleeping in places like bathtubs, as Dorothy mentioned, is because there wasn't nearly enough housing for all the newcomers who were flooding in. If you live in West Oakland, you might already know one of the ways that people dealt with this shortage. Where African-American families were, they chopped up their houses to rent out rooms, to make new apartments in the Victorians. Uh, and that's kind of how, why our housing stock looks the way it does now. That's a remnant of that period. But it says something to the kind of human spirit of, we're going to make this work. They made it work, but it wasn't easy. Again, Marilyn Johnson. A lot of public concern expressed that the migrants were bringing all kinds of crime and, and vice with them. And, you know, they were making all this money and they were just, you know, living it up in the bars and the, uh, the dance halls and causing fights and uh, just, you know, there was a sense that the whole culture of these cities was being thrown into upheaval, right? And that, you know, all kinds of criminal elements could, could drift in and there was a, a, a new climate of anonymity, you know, especially in the smaller communities and, and neighborhoods where people had known each other before and now suddenly there are all these strangers and they have funny accents and a lot of businesses were open 24 hours serving them. So the bars are going 24 hours a day, the movie theaters, the dance halls. And I really think that the cultural change was something that was really alarming to a lot of people. And as is often the case, the, the newcomers were the ones who were blamed for it. To push back against all these changes, the old school Oaklanders did things like force tavern owners to ban unaccompanied women. They blamed, quote unquote, promiscuous ladies for all the bar brawls that men were having. And the Oakland police would often violently shake down black workers coming out of bars after payday and steal their hard-earned incomes. That situation got so bad that a state committee even came down from Sacramento, the first investigation into police brutality of its kind. But still, all this harassment didn't drive people away. I don't know how many old-time residents anticipated the degree to which the newcomers would stay. I think the assumption was all along, we have to make this sacrifice temporarily for the war effort, and it's terrible, all this crowding and inconvenience and these, these strange people that we're not familiar with that we may not like, or they're uh, dark-skinned, or they, they talk funny, they're from the South. But I think there was a, a sense of annoyance um, and, and definitely some conflict, but the hope was that hopefully the war's going to end soon and things will go back to normal. But of course, they never did. They didn't just hope things would go back to the way they were. They tried to make it that way with discriminatory housing practices. And the city of Oakland had a powerful ally in this mission, the United States of America. 
You also have the federal government introducing new forms of segregation as they built war housing. For instance, you know, prior to the war in, in Oakland, there had been some public housing built that was not segregated. This was in West Oakland. And then when war housing, temporary war housing gets built during the war, they start segregating it. And again, not formally, but it was quite clear that African-American tenants were rented apartments on one side, on buildings on one side of a project, and white tenants were rented apartments on a different side. And the, the justification for this by federal housing agencies was they were supposed to follow local custom. Well, local custom, I, I guess you could argue that it was a, Oakland was a segregated city, uh, so they were following local custom in that regard, but it hadn't been a, a custom in public housing. The segregation she's talking about had a name, redlining. It was called this because when the federally backed Homeowners Loan Corporation drew up maps of where people could get loans, the neighborhoods with quote-unquote minorities were colored red. Being in the red meant no help from the banks. And when whole neighborhoods are shut out from banks, things fall apart. You get this kind of catch-22. It's like you're trying to get out of the blight or what is being deemed as blighted. And uh, then you can't get a, a loan because they're not, you know, you're, you're a loan risk because you live in this blighted area. And you can't fix it up because you don't make enough money to fix up what is considered blighted. And so it's like this kind of cycle of you, you can't win. Yeah, and you couldn't move either. They were actually subsidizing the building of subdivisions in places like San Leandro and even further out. They being the government. Surprise, surprise. They were actually being built during the war itself specifically for defense workers. And those homes were only open to uh, white buyers. They were, whether they were, well, some of them were renters, some of them were buyers, but in either case, particularly to get loans, home loans, mortgages to purchase them, banks required you to be white. You know, they had uh, redlining systems back then. And so some of these federal housing programs that were outside of the, the cities were almost entirely white, while the public housing programs were the only options for African-Americans in, you know, in the cities. And so even before we get the, the huge boom in suburbia after World War II, we see, you know, the outlines of it being established in the East Bay during those years. This is such an important thing to realize about white flight. It was really driven by institutional racism at the absolute highest levels of power government, banks, and I feel like I'm forgetting something. Oh yeah, corporations. A big reason for why white people were leaving Oakland, they were following the jobs. Part of the motivation for some of these companies moving out of places like Oakland and Richmond was because of the successful union organizing drives that had been led there in the in the late 30s and particularly during the war years. You know, we, we reached a, a high point of of union membership right at the end of World War II. And if these plants were aging and they were looking to either update them or move them, they often chose to move them out to suburban areas um, where they could 
hopefully avoid the unionized workforce that they had had in the cities. This is why Huey Newton called West Oakland a ghost town. There were still people, but when he was growing up, factory after factory after factory closed and crumbled. Even after the Supreme Court struck down racial housing covenants, that didn't exactly solve the problem. One of our most famous plays in American theater is about a black family trying to move out to the suburbs or raising in the sun. And people did, you know, uh, particularly in the 60s, move out. And some were not greeted well. Kurt Flood, who grew up in Oakland, a baseball player, my mother's favorite baseball player, as a matter of fact, um, tried to move out to, I think, San Ramon. And he was a famous baseball player. And he was told in no uncertain terms, you're not welcome here. And I remember, and it must have been worse earlier, but as recently as the 1970s, around here locally, San Leandro was the place that you could not go. And uh, people burning, you know, inward into your lawn or crosses on your lawn. And so um, it it was hard going. It wasn't easy. Dorothy's not talking about something she read in a history book here. She got a taste of it when her family moved to the Deep East. Where my family lived in far east Oakland, on 99th Avenue. It was my job in the family, or my chosen job in the family, to take a walk with my mom after school. And we'd always head south toward San Leandro, but there was a cop who was parked there to turn you back around into Oakland. My mother's from, like, rural Arkansas, so she knew. You know, you didn't have to, like, question the cop or, this is not the welcome wagon, and we'd turn around, but, you know, we'd stare at them for a while just to vibe them. No, no, no. (laughs) So, yeah, there was that, you know, The Bay Area has this image of being very liberal and welcoming and stuff, and some of it is, and a lot of it's not. In his book, Revolutionary Suicide, Huey Newton explained why he and Bobby Seale started the Black Panthers. This is from chapter one. Quote, The great exodus of poor people out of the South during World War II sprang from the hope of a better life in the big cities of the North and the West, In search of freedom, they left behind centuries of Southern cruelty and repression. The futility of that search is now history. Racism is as oppressive in the North as in the South. Oakland is no different. I actually went down uh, with my dad to visit the shipyard or the remains of the shipyard at that time, probably in the 1990s. There were still some buildings left and there still are a few today. I think today the only thing that remains are part of the structural steel buildings. The rest, I think, is all devoted to scrap piles of various uh, metals and materials. The place where more dry dock was located has been a recycling operation for a long time now. 
After the war, demand for ships evaporated, and they couldn't pivot back to making structural steel either. Globalization made foreign metal a lot cheaper. One of the last ships they made was named after an extinct species, the SS Carrier Pigeon. More went out of business in 1961. Uh, when the shipyard finally closed, I remember my father coming home and crying. I hadn't seen my father cry that often. It was a very sad thing for him and his brother to have to sell the shipyard that their father and their uncle had founded and developed. And so it was very hard, very heartbreaking. Ron Moore never got to work in the shipyard, but he is carrying on one family tradition. Just on a personal note, I find myself doing a lot of welding at this time of my life and forging to an extent as well on a very, very small uh, level, tiny level, compared to what the shipyard did. Ron makes art out of metal, like beautiful iron gates and statues. I have, through that, I think a greater appreciation than I would have had I not done a little bit of the metal working that I have. And so as I reflect on having been there, I am even more impressed and really humbled by what these people did. Ron is proud of what his family accomplished. They helped America win two world wars and played a big role in building the Bay Area. But he also acknowledges that Many people who worked at the shipyard suffered. It's very humbling on so many ways to think of the people who were discriminated against um, and uh, so many different things that were terrible and wrong. And uh, as we look back on them and reflect on them, I think we're very humbled and saddened and maybe humiliated too. I, I, I really don't have uh, probably the right articulation or words to express how, how horrible that probably was for many people. One of my favorite places in Oakland is the park out by the port on the waterfront. I was flipping through old photos with Ron when something occurred to me. It must have been a great place to watch the sunsets. Back then, I'm imagining, you know, some, some shipyard worker, like, up on a crane, you know, trying to finish up work before the next ship comes on and seeing that beautiful vista. I can well imagine standing or, or sitting in a crane high above or being on the deck of a ship or something and looking out over there and having those, those moments uh, amidst probably very hard and often probably tedious and not romantic or uh, fun work, but for maybe a moment or so, just seeing, wow, yeah. I wonder if that natural beauty was one of the reasons why so many people stayed in Oakland, despite all the challenges. There are lots of reasons to love this place, and being able to watch the sun set over the bay, you can't really put a price tag on that. But you can put a price tag on a rent. That's the big challenge so many Oaklanders are facing now. I asked Dorothy what she thinks about what some people have called the Black Exodus from Oakland in recent years. 
There's an exodus, or you can look at it like this. It's still white flight. They're just flying back into the city. And this is from a piece that I'm writing, and I, I just read this book, um, How to Kill a City, Gentrification, Inequality, and the Fight for the Neighborhood by Peter Moskowitz. Anyway, in it he writes, gentrification does not mean that the suburbs are over or that cities are becoming more diverse. All it means is that our geography of inequality is being redrawn. Gentrification is not integration, but a new form of segregation. The borders around the ghettos have simply been rebuilt. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Before I get into the shout outs for this episode, I just want to let you know that I've got a bunch of events coming up soon at places like Wolfman Books, the Octopus Literary Salon, and the Oakland and Berkeley Libraries. If you want the details, make sure you follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Again, there's links to all those at eastbayyesterday.com. And please check out the long lost Oakland map on Kickstarter. I would be really, really grateful if you grabbed a copy or even just help spread the word. Okay, on to the shout outs. Thanks to Gene Anderson, Alexis Madrigal, Gina Barty at the San Francisco Maritime Library, everybody at the Oakland Library, Janie Thaler Moore, Alan Petrich, and everybody who contributes to the Oakland Wiki. Oh, and a massive thank you to my partner on the Long Lost Oakland project, T.L. Simons of Front Group Design. Also, big thanks to Carla Hernandez Ramirez. She did a phenomenal job making our Kickstarter video. You can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on pretty much all the major podcast apps. I know I always ask you guys to give East Bay Yesterday some love on social media if you enjoy the show, but seriously, now more than ever. I've never done anything like this Kickstarter before, and I'm really nervous. And I think the map is pretty cool. If you help me reach this goal, damn, I will be so happy. I'll, I don't know, probably throw a party or something. Anyway, music for this episode came from Tab and Anatech. The theme song music came from Anatech. Okay. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.